Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Thanks, everyone, for this uh, attending our webinar today. This is uh, the third in three bilateral breakdown uh, today, science and education in the crossfire. I'm Mary Gallagher. I'm a professor of political science at the University of Michigan and director of the International Institute. I'm also affiliated with the Lieberthal Rogel Center for Chinese Studies, and I'm very pleased to moderate today's webinar. In doing so, I'm also representing two of our partners in this uh, webinar series, the National Committee on US-China Relations and the Michigan-China Innovation Center. All three of our organizations have been working together on programs focusing on US-China relations, particularly at the subnational level. So the agenda for the webinar today is that I'll briefly introduce the two other speakers, and then I'll moderate a discussion between the three of us. And following that discussion, we will open it up for a, a Q&A session. And we welcome your questions, of course. So please submit a question. You can click on the Q&A icon at the bottom of your screen and type in your question. I'll collect the questions and then during the Q&A section, I will read the questions to uh, Brad and Phil. And I apologize if we don't have time in advance to answer all the questions that are submitted. We'll also be uh, using the chat to uh, send in resources and links if we mention things like a report or a law um, that you wanna follow up and get more information on. And I believe after the webinar, we will distribute a list of those links uh, to all of the people who have joined the, um, the webinar. Our webinar today will feature three experts dis uh, discussing the developments and complications arising in the area of science and education between the United States and China. Bill Buxbaum holds the Marguerite Blake Wilbur Chair in Natural Science at Stanford University, where he has appointments in physics, applied physics, and in photon science at the SLAC National Accelerator Laboratory. He's also the founding director of Stanford's Pulse Institute. Brad Farnsworth is vice president of the American Council on Education, ACE, and he coordinates their global engagement strategy, which engages associations, governments, and corporations outside of the United States to advance the goals of higher education globally. I'm Mary Gallagher. I'm the Lowenstein Chair of Democracy, Democratization, and Human Rights at the University of Michigan, and I also direct the International Institute. I'm really glad to start this conversation uh, off between uh, Phil and Brad, and, and I'm going to start with Brad since he's coming from a vantage point of ACE, an institution that covers all of higher education. Brad, could you give us some background on the nature of the U.S.-China educational and scientific collaboration since it began, of course, uh, after diplomatic relations were founded in 1979. As a social scientist, I've been struck by the marked change in the federal government's stance on collaboration with China. And it reflects, of course, the broader shift in the relationship uh, going away from engagement and collaboration to more conflict uh, but science and education used to be considered a safe part of the relationship. So can you also tell us what's changed and why? Mary, well, I've always thought of higher education as, the, as being immune 
from uh, the ups and downs of, of the relationship overall. And over my fairly long career, I've seen lots of fluctuation in the quality of the relationship, but I have uh, really never seen anything like what we're seeing right now with a uh, really unprecedented level of tension that is now beginning to spill over into higher education. I think that American universities now are very important, if very reluctant, participants in this, in this broader discussion about how the United States should engage with a, with a rapidly rising China. And uh, the main point I'm gonna make here today is I think we need to respond proactively and creatively. I think if we are, stay in a reactive mode, I think we're gonna be in serious trouble. And uh, I'm gonna leave uh, the very important aspects of the scientific relationship to Phil, but I am gonna give a little bit of history of, of how we got here today. So I think that the deterioration in the relationship is, is in the higher education sphere really attributable to three broad areas. Uh, the first one is what I'd call improper influence. We've all heard about the criticisms of Confucius Institutes and their, uh, what, what are, they're often described as having undue influences on our, on our campuses. I think that after a very intense period of, of scrutiny, I, I, scrutiny, I think our government has, has backed off somewhat from its original concerns and criticisms, but in the meantime, we've seen many CIs close uh, for a variety of reasons. I put the relationship with Huawei in that same category or with other Chinese corporations, the idea that accepting money from China would put you in a position where you might have trouble refusing pressure from the Chinese government or Chinese agencies to behave in a, in a certain fashion. And then one thing we've been hearing more about from the State Department here is possible pressure, alleged pressure on the part of the Chinese government on Chinese students who are here in the United States. So students who are denied their access to uh, an open education and a free exchange of ideas through pressure from the local consulates and embassies or from the Chinese Students and Scholars um, Association. Uh, a big part of this is a very obscure, uh, a part of the Higher Education Act no one had heard of until a few months ago called Section 117, which is designed to monitor and record foreign gifts to universities. Uh, ACE has written pages and pages on this. I'll refer you to our website, lots of information there uh, but basically, this is being used as a tool to really pry open access to institutions and find out what they're up to as far as foreign gifts are concerned. I will say that ACE has been walking a tightrope on this. Uh, we're trying to maintain a good relationship with the Chinese government, with the Chinese embassy, with Chinese universities, our counterpart association in China, and on the other hand, with our US government, especially the intelligence community. We have a very good relationship with the FBI. We've hosted several meetings where we've given them a chance to, uh, to express their concerns and, and criticisms to, to our membership. So number one, foreign influence. Number two is the improper engagement of US researchers and, and scholars uh, as visitors in China. And I know Phil's gonna go into this in detail, so I won't spend a lot of time on this. But the idea is that if a Chinese university is employing 
a US-based professor, there's a potential for conflict of interest or what we also call conflict of commitment. And in some cases, the inappropriate sharing of research data and ideas, including grant proposals. Uh, really at the center of this is something called the Thousand Talents Plan. And I've, I've written a paper on this for Duke University. I'd be happy to talk about some of my findings. The most recent development is what I'd call the criminalization of this activity. Uh, the Justice Department is now prosecuting cases where they believe that scholars in the US have engaged in, in this inappropriate behavior. I can talk later about what that actually means and what, what laws they're using to prosecute those cases. But again, I know Phil is gonna, gonna go into that in some, some more detail. And then finally, and I think this is emerging, has emerged in the last year or so, is the research collaboration with Chinese universities that have some connection to the Chinese military. And uh, we have a, a new report that just came out from the Hoover Institute. We have a report from an Australian think tank that's, that's widely circulated here in Washington. We have an executive order that came out a, few, a couple of months ago restricting entry for, uh, for anyone in, from China with ties to the Chinese military. Um, that restriction is designed to be, quote, surgical, quote, and be limited to three to 5,000 of the uh, more than 370,000 Chinese students who come here every year. Uh, that's about all we know. We, we are not able to get any more details on what the criteria are for those restrictions, but I think that's really something that is uh, a cause of concern. And then I'd say a couple of things in emerging categories. Uh, one is economic competitiveness. And uh, those of us who can remember the days of head-to-head uh, -head competition with Japan, this won't sound like anything new. It's this idea that by leaking intellectual property ideas for new products, we're actually putting our country at a disadvantage relative to, to China. Uh, normally, the business community would be on our side on this and would argue for openness as opposed to controls, but we, one of the dramatic changes I've seen in the last three years is uh, that the business community is, is really no longer on the side of, of, of promoting engagement. Uh, there, there's, there's a great deal of skepticism and, and cynicism on the part of the business community uh, that is, is making things much more complicated for, for those of us who are in favor of, of engagement. And then another emerging issue is human rights. Are, are universities contributing by collaborative activity, contributing to the development of technologies that will facilitate the monitoring and control of political dissidents and, and anyone in China who opposes uh, the government. So it's a, it's a long list, uh, but I thought that I should cover that in, in some detail. Um, I just want to give a little bit of history on, on scientific collaboration because I, I, I think it's, it's important and Phil's going to pick up on this, I know. But uh, historically, university uh, research in this country has been divided into two categories, fundamental and, and classified. And uh, the first is really considered the default. So unless it's the burden of proof is on the government to show that research output is militarily or, or is, is uh, potentially compromising to national security. If they cannot prove it, then the default is to be in the area of fundamental research. We have federal research agencies that are uh, actually mandate that, that uh, the, the output of fundamental research be widely disseminated and available to, to everyone. 
And all of our campuses, Michigan, uh, Stanford, everyone has a vast infrastructure to, to monitor and force these, these policies. So many, many FDEs at universities and in government monitoring what is a, is a very well-established um, infrastructure going back to the 1980s. And what we've seen is the creation of what I, uh, an attempt to create what I'll call a third area or a gray area. And I, as I was preparing for this talk, I put together all the adjectives, adjectives I could find to describe this. And I came up with um, sensitive research, uh, emerging research, potentially applied, potentially commercial, pre-competitive. Uh, so those are all adjectives to describe uh, this attempt to create a third category that would be subject to, to more government control and, and restrictions. They all su suggest a broader uh, conceptualization of, of national security. And this pressure is coming from multiple points. It's coming from the White House, it's coming from Congress, and it's coming from the intelligence community. I'm just gonna say one more thing about that and leave everything else to Phil because I, there is a recent NSF study on this that ref refers back to this policy document of the 1980s, NSDD 189, which really defines that fundamental dichotomy between fundamental and, and applied research. And, and the latest report from NSF says that we got it right, that, that dichotomy should stay. And they say we should discourage the use of these new definitions that would create what they call an intermediate level boundary. In other words, sort of this this mezzanine tier of, of uh, restricted activity. And, and uh, finally, and I think very important, they say that there are, there are violations of what they call research integrity. Um, and so they're, they're not arguing that the kind of activity we've seen with the Thousand Talents Pro Plan is, is in any way criminal. It's, it's inappropriate and it needs to be fixed. But uh, they put it under the rubric of research integrity, which would fall under the category of other types of, of inappropriate research activity that universities tend to regulate them themselves. So I've got about five minutes left and I wanna use it just to have some suggestions. We're gonna talk, I, I know we're gonna have a great conversation, but some suggestions for where we go now. Uh, first of all, I think it's really important to reset the whole frame. I think our community, the Chinese studies community and the research community, we need to acknowledge that our relationship with China is, needs to change. There is no longer any status quo to go back to. Um, I think there is nonpartisan support for a much more confrontational approach to China. Uh, and that's coming, as I said, from the business community. It's coming from the human rights community and uh, very vehemently coming from the intelligence community. Uh, and this is regardless of who wins in November. Um, this is, I think, we're talking about a fundamental reset and doing nothing will simply invite more government intervention. Uh, the second point is, I think we, and when I say we, I think the university higher education community can fix the problems with research integrity. I, I think with our collaborations with China, uh, we can commit to a plan of action. And I've written a paper on this. Uh, very briefly, I'm suggesting that we bring together the university communities from both countries and come up with a code of conduct that would govern all research collaborations between our, our two countries. Um, uh, in that paper, I go into considerable depth on the Thousand Talents Plan and, and some of the criticisms of the way 
that Chinese policy has managed toward higher education. And I conclude that most of the culprits are at the university, at the institutional, and even at the departmental level. I don't think this is part of a grand strategy. I don't think it's a national strategy. I think it's individual institutions doing things that are inappropriate. And I think we have the strong connections as a community to fix it on, on our own. I think also we need to address this issue of uh, university connections to the Chinese military. So when I look back and I wrote this talk, I was thinking about one influential study that came out of a think tank in Australia that's really made the rounds here in Washington. Uh, we have a new, new study that just came out of the Hoover Institute on Chinese uh, ties, university ties to the military. And then finally, as I mentioned, we have this executive order from the Department of Homeland Security that's going to restrict visas for Chinese citizens who have ties to the military. That's a rule, uh, in my opinion, we're never gonna see the rule. Uh, we're just gonna have to live with it. And so that's three different approaches to defining ties to the Chinese military. When you see that many, it's a recipe for trouble. I think that uh, one of the things we really need to do is be much more proactive in defining what is an appropriate limit to, to um, engagement with Chinese universities with ties to the military. And finally, I think we need to be uh, giving much more concrete examples of how higher education cooperation has benefited the United States and not just our community, the university community, the Chinese community, but uh, Chinese studies community, but communities everywhere. Um, the way that global engagement has contributed to the production of knowledge that's contributed to economic growth. Um, I, I know that Phil and I are gonna, gonna talk about this in the discussion, but I will just mention a couple of things that ACE is doing. First is a project we're doing on the field of virology for obvious reasons. It's very high profile right now. And we've looked at how many of the top scholars in the US are from other countries. How many came here as graduate students and stayed on uh, at, at US institutions to be the top uh, in their field. And secondly, how many articles in the top virology journals are produced through international collaborations. In many cases, these are scholars from China and other countries who came to the United States as doctoral students, they became faculty, they became researchers, and then they used their personal ties with their home country to develop these, these transnational research networks that have been so productive. So telling that story better, I think is important. And the second part is students. I, again, I think we need better stories and better data on what international students do after they graduate from US institutions. So we're gonna talk a lot about today, today about how, how uh, PhD graduates have gone on to really contribute to the research agenda in the United States. But we have business students, we have uh, engineering students uh, at the master's level, at the undergraduate level who stayed in the United States and, and really contribute to innovation and economic growth. And, and we need to tell that story better because I think it's a, it's a terrific story. So I'm just about out of time here. Um, I hope I've created a sense of urgency. I, I think that uh, I'll close with um, a private comment I received from a senior international officer at a major public research university who said that uh, the cost of engaging with China is rising. Uh, they're not turning their backs on China. They're not buying into the, to the decoupling argument. But if you look at the legal, political, uh, financial, and reputa reputational costs of engaging with China, it's becoming more complicated and it's becoming more expensive. And so uh, I, I really think we, we need to 
act quickly and decisively. And I will stop there. Thanks, Fred. Um, I have lots of questions to follow up um, when we have our discussion, but let me go to Phil for a minute. And, and Phil, I should have also mentioned when I introduced you that you're also the president of the American Physical Society. So you also, in addition to your work at Stanford, you have a broader overview of um, STEM research and how um, this new environment is, a, is affecting um, both the campuses and also the labs. So can you talk a little bit um, more specifically about how this new environment is affecting people in these major fields? Uh, sure, thanks very much, Mary. And uh, I think Brad gave uh, a wonderful uh, introduction to um, the points that I wanna make. I, I'm speaking, I'm not a policy analyst. I'm a, I'm a professor, I'm a scientist. And the reason that I'm the person who's here is that I'm also the president of the American Physical Society right now. Uh, and uh, in that role, uh, starting a couple of years ago, um, uh, we began to really see that research collaborations, physics collaborations with China were coming under scrutiny. Um, in, in, in that uh, year, in the summer, uh, the FBI and uh, NCSC uh, assistant directors testified in Congress very uh, visibly about um, how uh, foreign researchers were using U.S. university connections to commit economic espionage and intellectual property theft. Uh, Brad described this as Australian report uh, uh, about uh, civil military fusion strategy came out at that time. And you have to remember that this is a time when international collaborations are having some of their biggest successes in, in the history of science. Uh, things like detecting uh, gravity waves, uh, things like, like imaging uh, supermassive black holes at the center of galaxies. These are huge collaborations that even though uh, they have a lot of leadership in the United States, they're enabled by world collaboration. And it's something that we can't uh, cut ourselves out of. And so uh, the science community, scientists are taking, are taking notice. Um, we have two concerns. Uh, the first is that research integrity, that is generally fairness in research is essential for science to flourish. And so when we hear uh, about uh, activities that violate that, it's very disturbing, not only because to do bad things is wrong, but because it kills the ability to do science. But the other very important concern is that uh, open participation in science, that is the freedom to do science, is also essential. So fairness and freedom, and, and these kinds of reports and testimonies were, were disputing one and then threatening to restrict the other. And so of course, the science community has been very interested in this. Now, historically, as I think we all know, uh, the US has been as free and fair as anywhere. And this is one of the reasons that our universities are really the magnets for bringing the most talented and most creative scientists in the world to our country. Um, but there are now threats and there are reports about uh, discriminatory and exclusionary treatment of uh, foreign uh, scientists, uh, even US scientists who ha are ethnically Chinese. Uh, and you know, uh, science can't flourish in that kind of environment either. We can't have mistrust and exclusion based on national origin 
or ethnicity. So in, in a sense, the community seems to be, to be caught in, in the middle, and there are some real effects from that. Uh, we have begun to hear from department chairs in physics departments that there's been a fall off in foreign student applications to graduate school, um, that the US may, uh, may be being viewed as a, a less uh, welcoming place. Uh, actually, uh, the APS has a lot of members, um, 50, 55,000 or so. So we surveyed our members to find out uh, whether they uh, felt that this was true and uh, uh, whether they were seeing similar things. And what we found is that, is that both of those points are right. There really is a fall off. We've documented that now. And uh, in, in uh, asking the reasons why students who could come to study in the U.S. are choosing not to, we're finding that it's uh, viewed as a less welcoming place. Now, uh, also a couple of years ago, the, the, the FBI and uh, other uh, security agencies, they began a kind of a roadshow. They traveled to universities. They traveled to speak to us and to university leaders to warn about the dangers of, of espionage, not the danger of espionage by spies, but by our own faculty and postdocs and students. Uh, you know, in the APS, we received a briefing on that as well. And it became clear, and it is still clear, that a divide has been building between academia and the federal government. And this is something that has not existed, certainly in my career. It hasn't existed, certainly, for many decades. Uh, it's really just uh, uh, a, a two different views. Uh, security agencies maintain that academic contacts with the Chinese pose a potential threat and that students and postdocs can actually hijack US expertise and use it eventually or have it be used against our country. But scientists see it just the other way. Chinese students and postdocs, we all know in the science community, these people make contributions that are so valuable to the US that we want the opportunity for them to stay. And that banning these kinds of talented and creative young people simply hurts us and enriches our competitors. And so we don't believe that that's a good solution. So we're all searching for ways to resolve this conflict right now. Uh, I know that the universities and labs uh, are forming uh, networks. They're sharing information better. Uh, they're, they're finding ways to look for security breaches. They're sharing best practices. Uh, and that's certainly uh, a way that we're trying to, to address the problem from within our own community. Another way that we're doing this is by talking more uh, widely. Uh, the National Academy of Science convened a series of closed door discussions to bring all the sides in this issue in the United States. That is the security agencies, the university administrators, the, uh, the funding agencies to bring them all into the same room. And these are going to continue. And this is very important. Uh, if we're going to find some solutions. Um, you know, in physics, which is only one part of science, but it's highly international, uh, you know, we, of course, we have our own voice in this matter. Uh, and in our view, uh, a healthy community is one in the United States is one where there's a partnership between scientists and the government. On, on the scientist side, we have to live up to the highest standards of scientific integrity. It's, it's important for the conduct of science, and that includes uh, transparency. It includes disclosure of conflicts of commitment. It includes reciprocity. Uh, so when we collaborate, it has to be a two-way street. 
and also the, 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 the protection, this is very important, the protection of our research before it's published. That is, while we're doing the research and while we're coming up with the solutions to science problems, uh, there has to be uh, uh, privacy of, of, of that research. The government on its side has to recommit to the policy that Brad just outlined, this NSDD 189 that was actually goes back to the Reagan administration, although every few years it gets reaffirmed and as recently as this last year, as we heard, that fundamental research has to remain open to the fullest extent possible. And that if it's necessary, the mechanism to protect national security is classification. So uh, we started to engage also um, the Chinese counter, uh, uh, physics community, our Chinese counterparts. Um, we've had closed door meetings between uh, a few leading physicists uh, convened by the American Physical Society and Chinese counterparts from the Chinese Academy of Sciences and, and other Chinese uh, scholarly organizations. And what we find when we talk scientist to scientist uh, without you know, uh, large uh, am amplified speakers just uh, between ourselves, we find that there's really no disagreement about the need for the elements of integrity that I just laid out. That is transparency, disclosure of conflicts, reciprocity, um, and, and the protection of research results prior to, disclo to, to, disclo to a publication. Um, you know, we, we've also met with uh, physics leaders from Europe and from Canada, South America, elsewhere in Asia. And we've learned that the rest of the world is actually fully informed about the decline in the US as a destination for the top graduate students. And they are eager to fill this gap. The UK uh, has started a fast track system for STEM students seeking a visa. And there was a, just a, a report looking at some data from Canada and it found that there was a surge in uh, US resident non-citizens, that is in people who reside in the US but are not US citizens requesting residency in Canada. Uh, it's effectively doubled in the last couple of years. And we've also uh, been working with Congress. We all know that most students are not spies and a good way to limit the influence of the Chinese Communist Party or the Chinese military would be by offering US citizenship to promising scientists who would like to stay. And so there's a, a Keep STEM Talent Act introduced by Senator Durbin that provides a path to a green card and citizenship for international students that is currently in, in the Judiciary, Judiciary Committee uh, in, in the Senate in this session. Of course, Congress uh, you know, li listens to people like us to formulate those policies, but they also listen to the security establishment. And uh, uh, Senator Portman's committee, which is the Senate uh, Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, uh, released a report uh, last year uh, that uh, uh, basically uh, tried to uh, bring together uh, all of these security uh, uh, problems and, and their implications. And although they do mention the important contributions that international students make to our science community, the main message was that Chinese exchange programs, such as the talent program, are designed to harm the US. That's, that's the, the main message from that. They, that's turned into legislation now, uh, which is uh, called the Safeguarding American Security Act. And that bill would create a very strong oversight. Federal Research Security Council in the White House 
uh, to coordinate security oversight over grants in all the funding agencies. This is done for greater security. The, the difficulty, of course, is that we have to be very vocal about uh, commenting on how that kind of thing is carried out because it could be subject to great overreach. And we've seen some examples of the tendency for overreach in executive orders coming out of the White House just this past year. Uh, other uh, groups, of course, are also weighing in on this. The Hoover Institute uh, last week released its own report, uh, and it, uh, it analyzes uh, the depth of the, of the collaborations between U.S. researchers and, and, and uh, scientists, particularly from some of these specific Chinese universities that are, are named as uh, having ties to the military. Uh, and you know, they, they point out that these are not themselves uh, evidence of security breaches, but they certainly do leave the reader feeling that the Chinese uh, scientists are, are now all around us, firmly, fir fir firmly connected to universities all around the country. Uh, and then they go on in that Hoover Institute uh, report to recommend how universities can build a more secure research environment. Uh, very much along the lines of some of the, the things that we've already been talking about. Uh, 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 transparency, uh, disclosure of conflicts of commitment, but done in a very systematic way uh, that uh, could potentially uh, help us uh, at least uh, feel that we're achieving more control over our security. Now, uh, the White House has been um, weighing in on this. Uh, they, together with the Department of Homeland Security, uh, they've been issuing a series of executive orders and rulings uh, related to excluding various classes of STEM workers. Uh, Brad talked about this. Uh, often these include students and uh, often these uh, executive orders are, have a, a connection to the COVID crisis, uh, but the university community is certainly increasingly anxious about this. Uh, just, to, just to give a, a flavor for these, the, the, the first one on May 29th, suspended entry to the US for Chinese students uh, uh, that implement or support this military civil fusion strategy. And as Brad mentioned, that we, can't, we don't know uh, how that's being implemented yet. Uh, in fact, we don't even know what list the government tends to use for uh, institutions that uh, are, are aligned with the military. The Hoover uh, report, by the way, uh, listed seven. Uh, the, uh, the Australian report, Brad also mentioned, listed 56. And these are among some of the main universities that our graduate students come from and that also have administrators who were trained in our universities, working now as high level administrators in the universities in China. Uh, there have been other executive orders. Some of them we've really successfully pushed back on. There was a warning that one would uh, eliminate a program, a visa program called OPT that a lot of our students use after they get a degree and, and uh, before they go on with their career. Uh, and that was blocked, uh, I think, uh, because of a lot of community action that informed their members of Congress and got a letter uh, from a lot of Republican congressmen written to the White House to help uh, turn that off. Uh, but there have been other proclamations. Uh, there was a proclamation that uh, restricted new H-1B visas, um, and uh, there's uh, uh, there was a there was a, an order from ICE 
that would cancel the uh, F1 visas for any international student who couldn't take an in-person class in the US, uh, even in the midst of this crisis. So that, one, that one was dropped uh, as, as, as was, it was uh, it, uh, Harvard and MIT sued. Uh, and um, uh, so much community support supported the that, their lawsuit for an injunction that the government just dropped it. But these things are, uh, of course, continuing. And, uh, and so uh, the, um, you know, the next step from, from our point of view is um, continue to talk, shine a light on these problems, make our case, as Brad has pointed out, that there really is no choice uh, to uh, not engage internationally. And China is a big place. It's a wealthy place. It's a technologically advanced place. It has great scientists, we know that, and we have to engage with them, and we simply have to find a way to do that that doesn't jeopardize our security. Thanks, Phil. One thing I wanna ask both of you about is the, the way that we as uh, people in higher ed should parse the issues and um, address the issues with perhaps, as I think you're both recommending, new practices, new behaviors within universities as a way to <clears throat> address the concerns that are coming from the federal government, particularly the intelligence agencies. So there is the, the first is research integrity, which is related to conflict of interest and conflict of commitment. Um, as the Hoover Institution report talks about, their model is a much more proactive uh, model of behavioral change. Um, against what they, I think, call uh, a compliance-driven model. And certainly as a, as a professor, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm well aware of the requirements once a year usually to um, fill out the forms, to take some video training um, to reduce um, the, the, the possibility that there'll be some sort of violation of, of research in integrity. And so my impression is those things have already been strengthened in the sense that they, they seem more um, important to the way in which universities are going about having faculty um, be aware of those concerns. So research integrity is one. Um, the second is um, intellectual property, uh, including, as Phil pointed out, um, the, the ability to keep your, your research um, uh, your own until, until it's published. Um, and then also relatedly is technological technology transfer when you do have, I'm a, I'm a political scientist, so I don't think we ever um, actually create things that people would pay for. Um, but we, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the STEM fields, this is a really important as, as well as medical, right, for technology, technology transfer. Um, and then finally, national security. And national security is this issue of um, allowing research to be done in such a way in collaboration with Chinese scientists or Chinese um, institutions that hurts our, our, our national security. So these are, to me, very separate but related uh, issues. And I wanted to ask you to, to talk about some ways in which we can parse these out to make them uh, distinct in, in, in how we address them. Related to that uh, and, and to the national security issue is a kind of extended question, which is, um, my reading of the Hoover Institution report and the way that the analysis was done is that it showed 254 peer-reviewed articles 
that were published in either English or Chinese that included authors who in some cases were from American institutions and then um, from institutions in China that are affiliated directly with the military, the so-called Seven Sons. Those 254 articles were, were published and they, they because they are co-authored, they appear to demonstrate collaboration between American academics and academics in China affiliated with the military. As you say, Phil, there's no claim in the article or evidence of, um, of uh, clear breach of, of national security. But what it seems to say in the report is that any aiding and abetting of the Chinese military, any strengthening of the Chinese military is by default a, a harm to US national security. If that's my reading of the report and if that's what the report and, and many other um, ways in which it's been spoken about at the, at the federal level, that to me then says that foundational research or fundamental research when it's done in collaboration with Chinese scientists, especially at these universities, but I think probably broader than that, um, risk U.S. national security. So if that's what, if that's the, the, the kind of claim, and if that is how it's defined by the federal government, um, how can universities respond? And what would be the what would be the costs of that to our to our own research superiority? Well, you, you let, let, let's talk about the cost first, um, because um, right now, uh, fundamental research done at the university level is uh, in, the, in the STEM fields is largely carried out by graduate students and postdocs. The number of those that are international is about half. The number of that half who are Chinese is about, well, in physics, I, I guess I, I, I'm only speaking off the top of my head. So the numbers I keep in my head are physics. So is about a third of that half. That's a lot of talented students. So, and I think this goes to the crux of what harm does it do to us to isolate ourselves from China? The first harm that it does to us, in my view, and I think the view of a lot of of uh, the science community is it cuts us off from some of the best, most talented people. And the proof that these are among the best and most talented people is all around us. Uh, every major university has uh, world-class faculty, many of whom are uh, Chinese and originally came to this country as students. Um, and many of, and it's not just that, you know, look at our national labs. Many of our, our, uh, our research laboratories are also headed by people who came here as foreign graduate students from, from China. So we're, we're cutting ourselves out from that talent. Now, uh, the, 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 the sort of underlying response to the other side of that argument which would be, you know, yeah, but we have to cut ourselves off from them because otherwise that we're simply, we're, we're simply, you know, feeding their military all of our best ideas is that um, twofold. First, by the same token, we don't want to feed the Chinese military the best people, do we? And this is one of the things that would automatically happen with that, that cutoff. That's there's not, not even any dispute that that would happen. Yes, it would. Um, but the, the other point 
uh, has to do with the um, the 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 way the 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 way to um, effect an ethical scientific enterprise, which is um, through these mechanisms that are actually also discussed in the other chapter of the Hoover uh, report uh, about um, enforcing disclosure, enforcing transparency, uh, making sure that contracts are not just a contract between a US professor or a scientist and a university in China. That's, that's not a very even deal, is it? But rather the contract would be, if, if, if a collaboration is going to exist, has to be uh, at, a, at a parallel level. Just those, those kinds of, of, of things. Um, a full understanding of who you're dealing with. Uh, of course, uh, you know, in, in science, transparency is never a bad thing. The, the, the business about, uh, about theft of uh, fundamental research occurs at the, um, at, the, at the not yet published level, at the unpublished level. And it, and it is a real problem. And it is not simply a problem with China. It's a problem between research groups you know, U.S. to U.S. even. I mean, it's, just a, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a very important issue that um, scientists should have uh, the right and, and, they, and on the other side also the obligation to not uh, share the results until they're, they're ready to be shared. And of course, then once they're ready to be shared, as you point out, uh, agencies uh, mandate that they be shared in a way that's very public for fundamental research. And I think that that's the way to answer that that kind of of a of a of a, of a, of a charge that we we need to uh, stop doing research with our Chinese collaborators. Brad, do you want to add anything? That's uh, a great great answer. I just want to add a couple of things, and and that is, I think, that when the intelligence community uses the term intellectual property, it's using it in a in, a, in an expansive way. So as Phil said. What we're really talking about is, is ideas and data at the pre-publication level. So this is not copyrighted material. This is not patented material. This is not, this is not, does not fit the conventional definition of intellectual property. What it does is I think really raise the stakes politically because it conflates it with a very serious problem that the business community in China has experienced with intellectual property theft and with the theft of intellectual property in the private sector in the United States, which is, which is a problem as, as well. So it's a, it's a way of escalating the rhetoric by, by calling this intellectual property. But I, I would agree with Phil here, it really falls under that, that, that umbrella of research integrity. This is something that institutions know how to deal with. They're, they are struggling with it. Uh, but every major research university I know is taking this seriously and is developing a plan of, of action. Um, I'll just say one thing about that Hoover report, and I do think everyone should, should take a look at that. Uh, what they're saying in that was, uh, th my understanding was they were not arguing that the problem is limited to those seven universities. They were saying, this is just the start. This was, this was the easy pickings. This is what was publicly available. Uh, we, could, we could do Google searches and we could, uh, do searches in the local library and come up with a fairly comprehensive look at how those seven universities are engaged with the rest of the world. But that really was saying, they were arguing that that's just the starting point. So we got you started, but we expect 
all of you listening to to really take this uh, to the next to the next level. And and that's where I think our work really has to be is is sort of deciding what as a community we're going to define as as inappropriate partners in in China. Uh, Mary, I think you're right. I think that. Uh, that 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 attempt to sort of create that third category of research, what NSF calls intermediate between fundamental and 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 national security. That's you're you're exactly hitting it on the head. Uh, uh, fundamental research that could eventually turn into something with applications that would make China more economically competitive or more more militarily strong. Uh, that's a conversation we've never had in the research community here. So uh, I, I think it is very troubling. And just a, just a brief follow up on that on on, on that last point. Um, again, when when they're talking about this uh, sort of uh, sen sensitive but unclassified uh, research, of course it's also unpublished. So uh, all of this comes under the category of unpublished because once published, what's sensitive? Anybody can pick up the journal anywhere in the world, mm -hmm. and particularly with open access coming, which is of course a completely different conversation. Uh, it'll be even easier. Yeah, great. That's a great point too. Um, I also just have to say, as a as a social scientist who works on China, what one of the impacts I think, or or you know, kind of a side effect of, of what will be happening or what is already happening, um, is <laughs> there will also be um, retaliation and there will be uh, impacts on our own access to to the field, which is really already happening in China as um, the Chinese own, the, the government and the Communist Party in China have become much more uh, close to foreign researchers. And I feel many Chinese researchers also feel like it's much more difficult now in China to do research, particularly on the political system. Um, but the US government with its own um, new initiatives to restrict Fulbrights, to canceling the Fulbrights to China and Hong Kong will have a huge impact on our access to what we know about China, which um, again is, a, is, is actually, I think, very important to the national security and to the intelligence communities. And it's a real counterproductive move on the part of the US government to restrict uh, our own access um, to research in China. We have, enough, we have a hard enough time with the Chinese government. We don't need our own government further restricting us. I just have one last question for Brad very quickly uh, before I open up to some questions that we have um, about the recommendation to work directly university to university. So we know um, that Chinese universities, not only are they all public in the same way that say the University of Michigan is public as a state level university, Chinese universities have affiliations either to the ministry or to some municipal level uh, bureau, um, but the control of Chinese universities by the party, by the organization department, by the Chinese Communist Party is much stricter and is restricting academic freedom in China for sure, but wouldn't it also be um, a barrier to the kind of university to university level um, negotiations and drawing up of say norms and 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 rules. Uh, what what isn't there a barrier to 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 that plan? I I think it's a great first of all it's a great question. I I think that if we were talking about the uh, certain areas in the social sciences where where you're uh, very active. Yeah, there would be there would be limitations. What what I uh, argue in my paper is this is a this is a community and and I would include the government in this that is 
benefited enormously from global engagement. If you, if you look at all the uh, disciplines in China that have risen, risen the most rapidly, it's been through international collaboration. And so I think there is a, a deep understanding of, of the benefits of, of staying engaged um, and, and Phil mentioned that, that at least in the physics community and, and talking to other university leaders in China, I've come to the same conclusion. There is actually broad consensus on what research integrity is and, and, and what the norms should be. So there's, there's frustration within China uh, at the extent to which these norms are not, are not followed. Um, the other thing I did with uh, Mary's graduate student, Chad Westra, is, is really look at all the letters that I could find, uh, uh, all the appointment letters under the Thousand Talents Plan. And I may be the only person who actually read every one that's publicly available. But it's, it's uh, fascinating in the sense that each institution clearly is left to define uh, the terms of engagement with, with each individual scholar. So if we were seeing this sort of monolithic top-down national strategy uh, to use the, the terms of the FBI by, to extract intellectual property by any means necessary. I think that's the exact terminology they use. I think you'd see a much more coordinated, standardized approach. And in fact, these letters are all over the place. And you know, that's how you end up with uh, someone making $50,000 a month US uh, for a part-time position in, in China. So it's, it's, it's I think, a, a decentralized, problem. Now, uh, could the Chinese government change their mind tomorrow and say, now we're making this something that uh, we're going to address at the national level? Ab absolutely. And uh, there, there's certainly, if you look at uh, things like the appointment of senior leadership, the um, content of the, the required curriculum uh, at undergraduate, at the undergraduate level, I mean, these, this is, it's, it's completely different from the United States. So I don't want to suggest that we're looking at a, a, a mirror image of what we have in the US. But I, but I do think there's solid ground for, for collaboration on this. Thanks, Brad. Okay, so let me go to some of the questions. Um, we have quite a few already. Um, so I'm just gonna read the questions and, and uh, I don't have time to sort of parse them out. But uh, this question comes from Mark Elliott. Uh, I like the idea of a higher education summit. Cynics might point to the Hefei statement of 2013 which emerged out of a similar kind of meeting of minds in international higher ed, and which seems to have had no effect in halting the narrowing of academic freedoms at Chinese universities. How would a future meeting and any resulting agreement need to be structured in order to provide the kind of reassurance, reassurances of transparency and academic collaboration and exchange that would be required for a successful reset? So either Phil or Brad, Brad, I know Phil has also been involved through the American Physical Society in not necessarily university to university, but associations working on similar initiatives. Uh, was one, one point that comes to mind with that idea of a summit is that it, it's really important to keep in mind that not only the heterogeneity that Brad spoke about of Chinese universities, but the competitiveness. This is something that we heard from our Chinese counterparts with respect to the Thousand Talents uh, program, that one one of the one of the the, the uh, you know, they get into bidding wars, uh, for example, and uh, you know some some of the of the things that have been put forward as just you know egregious uh, efforts to bribe. Well, of course they, they they do appear on the face of it to be efforts to bribe, but they the the motivation uh, may not merely 
be to uh, help uh, the greater China, but to help that university um, in its rivalry with other universities. And there's a, there's a hierarchy. And uh, so I, I, I assume that any kind of engagement that would be a, a, a meeting of all of the universities would, would, would come into that, um, that problem. And the other one point I wanted to make, which is a point that you also touched on, is that there isn't really parallelism uh, between um, the, uh, uh, the, the units, uh, the, the institutional units in the two countries, uh, not that much. The, the, the Chinese Academy of Sciences and the National Academy of Sciences are, are, are quite different in their structure and in their influence and, uh, and, and in their power. And, and so you have to be a little, uh, you have to be, you have to be very, very understanding of that in uh, setting up these kinds of engagements. Go ahead, Brent. One, just one point, and I, I know we got lots of questions, but one thing I didn't really touch on because I, I was conscious of time was that what we'd be talking about something very concrete, which, which would be recommended language for university agreements. And so this would be this would be language that you would insert into any any collaborative agreement between a U.S. and a Chinese institution, and those standards would cover any individual research collaboration between those two two institutions. And at the same time, you really uh, I think another recommendation has to be that an individual scholar cannot engage on their own; they have to do it under the umbrella of an institutional agreement. So. Uh, if if somebody comes in and wants you to sign an agreement to become a participant in the Thousand Talents program, you would not be able to do that unless your your, your institution and the the host Chinese institution had a pre-existing agreement. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay, so let me go back to the uh, Q and A. So this is from Paul Joy. Uh, yesterday, Senator Marsha Blackburn, Repub Republican from Tennessee advocated for increased R&D to colleges and universities as a way to better compete with China at an event with the Hoover Institution. Is there bipartisan support for this position on Capitol Hill and beyond to individual institutions and systems? There, there, there is, of course, uh, there's always bipartisan support for uh, raising uh, research uh, funding. Uh, in fact, as, as you well know, as possibly everybody on this on this call knows as well, um, that strong support in Congress is one of the things that, that's been keeping the research enterprise alive over the last four years because it has not, it is not shared by the Office of Management and Budget and the White House uh, in this administration. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, the devil of course is in the details and there, 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 is, uh, there, there already is other legislation that is going to greatly expand research funding. The Hoover report also pointed to increased research funding is one of the key elements of, um, of, of uh, helping us compete better against uh, possible security threats from China. So, uh, you know, doesn't mean in the era of deficits and deficit hawks that this would actually happen, but I think everyone understands that that's an important piece of the puzzle. Yeah, that's, that's uh, perfect. Uh, I don't have much to add. I'll just say that uh, uh, let me just tell a little bit about a focus group that we did. So I said we were doing this project on the career pathways for international students. And as part of that, we convened several focus groups in middle America, working class Americans, and asked them what they thought 
about international students. So two interesting things. One is they, they totally get our dependency in key fields like physics. So they understand the need to recruit globally to, to get the best talent. And so it took very little persuasion or explanation. Yes, that's what will make our economy grow and contribute to competitiveness. But everybody said that the real problem was not enough Americans were going into STEM fields. That this was, this was a, a, a temporary stopgap solution. The real solution is to get more Americans studying science, technology, engineering, and, and math. And so, uh, yes, I think there's a lot of political support for, for R&D, but I think one of the key things here is to make sure that however you do it, it really does it in a, it, it's really executed in a way that attracts more Americans in, into these fields. And, you know, people, we've been worrying about this for decades. I mean, we know that not enough Americans go into STEM fields. So I don't, I don't have the answer here, uh, but I am telling you that this is a potentially a political obstacle. Um, I just have to add as director of the International Institute and former director of the, the China Center at Michigan that in addition to funding for STEM, it's absolutely critical that the federal governments fund area studies and foreign language training, because actually the Hoover Institution report or the report written in Australia could not have been written unless the people had training uh, in yeah. Chinese language. And most of the reports that are being done on this issue are being done by people who are probably funded by Title VI um, or a FLAS award. And those awards, I have to say, um, the, the support from them from the federal government has fallen pretty dramatically in the last two decades. Um, so if anyone is listening out there um, on the webinar, please uh, support foreign language uh, education um, at the federal government level. Uh, I have another question. Uh, it's likely that sitting in a US university today is a future leader of China. These person-to-person -person relationships are a foundation of, and this is an anonymous uh, question, on which healthy lifetime bilateral interactions are built. Would this fracture be different under a Biden administration? And what efforts should be made to develop academic farm system by pushing more academic exchanges into K through 12 education? And if so, how? And it is not anonymous, he put his name. It's Tom Watkins, who's the former Michigan State Superintendent. Great, uh, I'll, I'll start. Um, I, I think that exchanges are, are something where, again, I think we can do a lot more to, to demonstrate the value. And so uh, when I, I was a Title VI director for over 20 years, and this was what I, I think one of our great, great failings was not coming up with better stories and messaging for the general public about, about the value of, of, of international expertise, and particularly with key places like, like China. Um, the irony here is that the Chinese government has quite a bit of money for this. And if uh, we wanted to get Americans to China, the Chinese would, be pay, would pay for a lot of it. And so uh, China, we, I mean, this is one of the reasons we're talking today. China is, is becoming a wealthy country and they can put money into uh, higher education and they can put money into exchanges at a scale that we may not be able to in, in the United States. Uh, so uh, what, what we have seen though is a deterioration to the point where Americans may not even want to spend time uh, in, in China. That's, that's very concerning uh, to me. And as far as, 
the, the development of leaders in the other direction, I think, first of all, I would not assume that every Chinese experience in this country is positive. Uh, just because they've done, you know, I, Mary knows I've had lots of MBA students. A lot of them came away with a really enlightened view of the United States, but a lot of them really didn't learn very much about American culture. And they went back to their countries with a lot of technical expertise, but did not really see any really reshaping of, of, of their attitudes. Um, we do tend to treat international students as commodities. Uh, you know, we've got all the numbers, $42 billion in revenue that we get from international students every year at our institutions. And it's, it's a very dangerous game to play. Uh, we should be paying a lot more attention to the entire experience of international students. How many of them make friends with Americans? Uh, how many of them get off campus and engage in extracurricular activities? Uh, one of the very most important activities is uh, something Phil alluded to, the, the OPT or the optional practical training. This is an opportunity with an F visa to get off campus, to work for an American company, to improve your English and to actually polish your resume. It's, it's a huge draw. And every time this administration threatens to cancel it, and I, I think for now it's okay. I mean, I think we may have sacrificed H1B in order to save OPT, but that's just my opinion. Uh, but I think it's, it's okay for now. Uh, but even, even hinting that that might be canceled uh, is, is a real deterrent for people to come to this country. Thanks, Brad. Phil, do you want to add anything? Uh, you know, just uh, one thing sort of at, at, the, at the level of um, visitors rather than, um, rather than people who are coming here to get a degree, um, visiting scientists, uh, one of the things that China is going to have in the future that they have not had in the past is their own international user facilities. That is leadership class science instruments that only exist one place in the world and that place happens to be China. Uh, and uh, I think that that's uh, going to be part of the leveling landscape that makes China an important uh, destination. And uh, I certainly, uh, I certainly hope we can continue on that path. I mean, this is a, a path that is uh, kind of necessitated by world economics in a way, uh, but uh, the, the uh, effect on, on the science community could be huge. Thank you. We have a lot of great questions. I'm not gonna get through all of them in the next um, few minutes, but let me just, let me get to one that I think is important because we talked a bit about it already. Uh, this is from Minya at Boston University. How well do American scientists and the government know um, Chinese universities with historical ties to the military and have projects with the PLA uh, does not mean close ties to the PLA operations today. Um, student scholars from such universities are quite from the military operation in general. So this is getting to this interpretation of and I think this is a broader issue, actually, because the, um, the executive order that will um, allow the State Department to deny visas to students who take part in universities that are involved in military civil fusion strategy, that could be a very, very broad uh, class of universities because most universities in China that have STEM are going to have probably some connection to the Chinese government and, and, and perhaps also the military. At the same time, it could be a super narrow definition of like the seven 
the seven sons, but the seven sons may not be accurate anymore. Because as, as Minya is pointing out, many of these universities have historical ties to the PLA, um, but they may not actually right now have any strong ties to the PLA. Um, so either one, um, if you have any, um, not just to the question, but to this broader issue of classification of universities. I, I, I don't know. I'd, I'd like to, to, to just, uh, just start by, by pointing out that I, I, I don't think uh, it's, um, it, it's, it's fair to be painting all of the students that come from a university as one way or the other based on the name of the university. Uh, these universities are, they can be big. Of course, there, there may be some that are super selective for spies. But, you know, generally what we're talking about when we're admitting students to graduate school are students that come from some of the uh, large uh, multi-program universities and they should be, and also, uh, also postdocs and, and junior scientists, they should be evaluated on the basis of these individual qualities of, of, uh, of, of ethics uh, that uh, we talked about. Thanks, Bill. Brad? Yeah, I, I think that uh, that's, that's exactly right, what, what Phil said. But I, I just want to emphasize something I said really quickly earlier, which is we're now seeing multiple definitions of what risk is. And so you've got the Australian report, you've got the Uber report, you've got a, a secret set of rules. And I, in my own opinion is it will remain secret for a very long time that is going to be screening visa applicants to come to this country. And uh, all along, any visa officer interviewing a Chinese student who wants to come to the US can ask a question about their ties to the military. Uh, that, that's always been fair game. And one of the points we made about the Portman bill is that they're really just reiterating in that language what a visa officer already has the, the authority to do. So uh, what, what that does is create a lot of confusion in China. And that means a, another deterrent for coming to, to the United States. When I gave my recommendations, I, I just want to hit on that again. I think this is where our community, the Chinese con studies community, can really make uh, a contribution. Because we, we know China. Uh, we understand the connections between the Chinese military and higher education in ways that many people in the current administration don't. I think there's a way we can do this in a balanced way. So it's not just opposing what has already come out, but is really coming up with uh, a much more thoughtful and, and nuanced response. If we don't do that, the criteria will be set for us. Thanks. This is a question from Helena Kalenda from the Luce Foundation. Do current technologies make this issue harder because many more in the past have potential du dual use applications? Wow. <laughs> Well, you would <laughs> just, um, yeah, well, I, I look, um, technology gets, get, gets more and more sophisticated. Uh, there's no question about it, but, um, it's, it's, uh, it's often thought, uh, incorrectly that, um, we, we do, uh, a lot of uh, protection of our national security by, um, by, by banning exchange of information uh, about technology that's actually already freely available. And, uh, and that, that's, it's important to keep in mind. I mean, there are, are, there are always things that are cutting edge, there are always things that are pre-publication, and it's very important to protect those. Um, as for the rest, you know, it may be that uh, there's a manufacturing capability that's uh, kept secret by a manufacturer, and uh, 
you want to protect that. But by and large, uh, that that is is not the case. And and so this is, uh, you know, a two-edged sword does have two edges on it. You know, put it that way. Um, so you know, the, these uh, should be uh, thought of as uh, as not cure-alls, but just uh, some of the things you can do. And I and I think that. The, the, the answer to Helena's question really depends on the discipline. And as, as uh, I think uh, APS has really been a model for how to engage these issues. And I think we're gonna see more disciplinary groups grapple with these, with these issues. Uh, I, I will say, um, I just talked to somebody, uh, actually a Michigan professor in artificial intelligence the other day, who said, uh, my field is totally global. I mean, I just, I, I simply cannot do what I do without international connections. My students come from all over the world. My collaborators come from all over the world. I have no idea where to set the bar. Yes, artificial intelligence will have, is having, and will have military applications. We don't know what direction it's going in. Uh, but as you get closer to the experts, it becomes much more difficult to define. Thanks, Brad. So we have about a minute left. Um, I did just want to mention to people in case they're wondering, we did actually bracket the conversation to talk very specifically about research collaboration in particular and, and sort of bracketed the issues of, of, uh, of influence that Brad mentioned, um, things like uh, and restrictions on academic freedom of Chinese students perhaps from pressure from their own government. Those are other really important issues and we just didn't have the time to discuss them today. In addition to that, we didn't really discuss in great detail, again, because of time, um, the limits that are occurring in China now related to academic freedom and also the growing concern about, Brad mentioned it, the use of, of, uh, of technologies to restrict the, the freedoms of people in China, including in Xinjiang and also in, in Hong Kong. So those are other issues that, of course, are important, but we just didn't have time to discuss them. Uh, so we are out of, officially out of time right now. Um, there are other questions, so hopefully we'll take a picture of the chat and, um, and relay them to Phil and Brad. A lot of great questions about Chinese students and how to uh, better um, integrate them into American campuses. I want to thank uh, our other panelists today and also to thank the National Committee and the Michigan-China uh, Innovation Center for, um, for co-sponsoring this event. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.